joining me in our virtual studio from all around the planet, we have Erica, Doug, Gabby, and Tiffany. Uh, today we're going to be talking about the vegetarian myth. Yes, it is a myth that you should uh, be on a vegetarian diet, and we're going to go into why and talk about all the reasons behind that. Um, so we want to start off a little bit with uh, this week in health news. Um, we have Japan not loving it. McDonald's just recalled one million chicken McNuggets. Cargill announced that they are confident that the blue plastic foreign material recently reported in one McDonald's chicken nugget in Japan did not originate from Cargill's production facilities. The source of the plastic is unknown. So what's funny about that is um, they're recalling chicken McNuggets because there was allegedly a piece of plastic in there, and I think people are largely not aware that chicken McNuggets themselves are not that dissimilar from actual plastic. <laughs> Yeah, it might have actually improved the nutritional value. Yeah. <laughs> are the chicken McNuggets made with pink slime, or am I thinking of something else? No, they are, yeah. They are, so, yep. so plastic is worse than pink slime, I guess. <laughs> I guess. I guess. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, people we don't have know what the... Here. I was just going to explain. Sorry, people don't know what the pink, pink slime is. It's like they yep. take... Uh, all the kind of meat products that have like ground into the floor and the tables and all that kind of stuff. And they scrape it off, um, run it through a filter. And then that slimy stuff is, is squeezed into food products um, like chicken nuggets. I don't know if they still do it with the chicken nuggets. It got quite a bit of uh, press at one time. And I think maybe uh, McDonald's turned around and said, no, 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 we're not doing that anymore. But uh, I'm sure whatever they're doing is not much better. Yeah. Well, we, we see here again an, an extenuation of uh, one of our articles from last week that we covered about how the fast food industry is trying to remake its image, trying to convince people that it's healthy. Um, they're removing one preservative from their ingredients while not talking about the other 10. And um, it's it's all a marketing scheme. Uh, you know, of course, if you were able to actually debate anyone in McDonald's corporate headquarters about the nutrition of their food, they would fall flat on their face. Um, yeah. Well, we have a couple other things that we wanted to cover. Uh, Erica, you had an article about something that's happening down in Argentina right now. Do you want to go over that? Yeah, the article is um, Argentina, the country that Monsanto poisoned with agrochemicals. And basically, just a synopsis of the article, uh, American biotechnology turned Argentina into the world's third largest so soybean producer but the chemicals powering the boom aren't confined to soy and cotton and corn fields. So these chemicals uh, routinely contaminate homes and classrooms and drinking water, and a growing chorus of doctors and scientists are warning that their uncontrolled use could be responsible for the increasing number of health problems turning up in hospitals across the South American nation. In the heart of Argentina's soybean business, house-to-house -house surveys of 65,000 people in farming communities found cancer rates two to four times higher than the na national average, as well as higher mm -hmm. rates of hyperthyroidism and chronic respiratory disease. Mm -hmm. And um, this kind of goes into what we briefly touched on last week about this whole soy industry, and it ties in really well with the vegetarian myth. So um, for others who may have not 
know or who may not know, uh, there was a Sot Talk radio interview with the author of The Vegetarian Myth, uh, Lier Keith, and uh, you can find it under Sot Talk Radio, Dissecting the Vegetarian Myth interview with Kier Lee, uh, or Lier Keith, excuse me, in 2013. And basically, um, Lier believed that a plant-based diet was the way to go, spent 20 years as a vegan, and now argues that people have been led astray. And so this is kind of her take on it uh, based on a lot of great research. And um, one of the things that really inspired me about the book being in the farming industry for 12 years is this quote that she had. Um, The truth is that agriculture is a relentless assault against the planet, and more of the same won't save us. In service to annual grains, humans have devastated prairies and forests, driven countless species extinct, altered the climate, and destroyed the topsoil, the basis of life itself. And so I kind of wanted to start on that and tie that um, introduction, if you will, in with this um, Monsanto poisoning the world with agrochemicals and focus just a little bit initially on pesticides and why she came up with this statement, you know, that um, agriculture is evil, basically. Um, It's the most destructive things that humans have done to the planet, right? So just a little bit of information on some research. Uh, In in a SOT article back in 2010, uh, written by Vandana Shiva, who is a very active spokesperson against genetically modified organisms and what she calls biopiracy. Basically what Lier is talking about is this killing of the planet and eliminating species and whatnot. Um, She cites the uh, UN, United Nations Food and Ag Organization report, and the report is called uh, State of the World's Plant Genetic Resources for Food and Agriculture. And according to this report, uh, industrial ag has pushed more than 75% of agro-biodiversity to extinction. And Lier goes into this extensively in her book. 75% of the bees have been killed because of toxic pesticides. And 75% of the water on the planet is polluted owing to intensive irrigation of chemical intensive industrial ag. Ecological destruction of the national capital is justified for feeding people, right? So this idea that they need to use all this chemical inputs and and big ag to feed all these people. And she goes on to state that um, hunger is actually grown. One billion people are permanently hungry. Another two billion people suffer from food-related ailments like malnutrition. And this hunger and malnutrition is designed with a food system driven by profits rather than health or sustainability. Mm. And uh, one more kind of nice article to, to support that, in the U.S. alone, more pesticides are coming to our food. This was back in 2014, uh, Mercola.com. 
2012 research showed that GMO crops have led to a 404 million pound increase in overall pesticide use from the time of its introduction in 1996. This equals an increase of about 7% a year, excessive use of agrochemicals by farmers, industrial ag farmers, has led to herbicide resistance both in weeds and pests, leaving farmers to struggle with an increasingly difficult situation. So as Lierre says in her book, agriculture is really more like ethnic cleansing, wiping out indigenous dwellers so the invaders can take the land. It's biotic cleansing. It's biocide, just as Vandana Shiva writes. And it is not nonviolent. It is not sustainable. And every bit of food is laden with death. Soil, species, rivers, that's the death that's in your food. Agriculture is carnivorous. It eats ecosystems and swallows them whole. Wow. wow. <laughs> and those are just two articles. If you if you search on the SOT site for pesticides, children, pesticides, environment, you're going to find hundreds of articles that all have very similar information. This idea of heavy chemical intensive farming that is basically just poisoning the planet and full, as we see in this Argent, Argentina article, that people are just getting sick and dying. And one one last thing by Vandana Shiva, she says that this paradigm of agriculture has its roots in war, right? As an industry that had grown by making explosives and chemicals for the for the war, remodeled itself as the agrochemical industry when these wars ended. Factories that manufactured explosives started making synthetic fertilizers and gradually the use of war chemicals as pesticides and herbicides began. 1984, the Bhopal gas tragedy is a stark reminder that pesticides kill. Pesticides in agriculture continue to kill farmers. So, yeah, lots of good stuff there. <laughs> yeah. Well, so it's, isn't it's it around the time of World War Two when they stopped uh, the the munitions factories? They changed them into agricultural factories where they produced um, the oil-based fertilizers that only provide nitrogen into the soil, but no other minerals that the soil needs to grow and be healthy. Exactly. Yeah. It reminds me of what it keeps. Uh, another quote from Lyric Keeps, the Lyric Keeps Vegetarian Needs, that the reality is that agriculture has created a deadlock for human rights and culture, creating slavery, imperialism, militarism, class divisions, chronic hunger, and disease. Sure, I think yeah, exactly. a, a lot of people might argue that the, um, that the vegetarian diet, excuse me, <clears throat> That the vegetarian diet is, is much more uh, humane. Uh, they're using a lot of uh, moral arguments, which we'll address uh, later on in the show. Um, but I, I think a lot of people are unaware, and that Keith addresses this in her book, um, that if you were to introduce hooved animals uh, to the grasslands, they would be restored within a few years. Um, mm. And that, you know, we've, 
would totally upset this entire balance um, and are now specializing uh, large areas of the countryside for one crop, um, which is completely destroying any kind of biodiversity and it's destroying the health of that environment. Um, not to mention, I mean, if you want to look into, uh, you know, the, <clears throat> the moral argument, which again, we'll kind of get into more later, but there, there are actually less death. Uh, there is less death per plate. If you were to eat two pounds of meat a day, uh, you would still only eat less than one cow in a year, which is two pounds is a mm -hmm. lot. Um, I'm, <clears throat> I don't even eat two pounds of meat a day and I eat a lot of meat. And, uh, <laughs> Uh, but if you if you eat vegetarian, when they turn up uh, those fields and destroying the ecosystem, you're looking at small animals. Um, you're looking at other uh, parts of the ecosystem that rely on that balance. There's actually much more death per plate that goes into a vegetarian meal than there is uh, into a, a, a high fat, a meat based meal. Um, so that kind of leads us into what we're, Doug was going to go and share some uh, some knowledge with us about red meat and the truth and the myths that are around that. Doug, you want to go yeah. into that? Sure. Yeah. Just before, I, I just wanted to say, um, I think that's uh, a really good point that you made, uh, Jonathan, because um, a lot of um, the arguments that kind of come out of the uh, vegetarian community, um, you know, they'll they'll focus on on um, you know all this uh, danger from pesticides and things like that. They um, you know they argue that well, we we should just convert to um, organic farming. But I think it's important that um, we realize that it's, it's agriculture itself that is, is um, destroying um, ecosystems and, and the land. Um, even if you were to do it with no pesticides whatsoever, um, you're still um, destroying the topsoil, um, taking huge uh, tracts of natural, um, biodiverse land and converting it to um, something that only grows um, one crop, um, it's basically like a prison camp for uh, for vegetables, in, in a sense. Um, yeah. Um, but anyway, yeah, moving on. Um, so uh, I did an article for Thought um, uh, about a month ago, I guess, uh, about uh, a recent study that came out of the University of uh, San Diego. Um, and this uh, really ties in with the vegetarian myth because it's, it's more of um, what we get from the media um, regularly, like it seems like every uh, four to six months, uh, the media they have to you know splash some headlines across about uh, how um, meat is going to kill you, or specifically red meat. Um, and kind of their favorite lately is that uh, red meat is going to cause cancer. Um, so this is a, a, another study along those lines. Um, this all came about. Um, there was a Japanese study uh, back in. Uh, I think it was in the 80s. Uh, I've lost my reference here. But anyway, it was a Japanese study um, uh, a number of years ago that uh, where they isolated um, a certain substance that you find in uh, burnt meat. Um, so it's a, a type of byproduct that happens when you actually burn um, uh, meat. Uh, and they force-fed it to rats um, in massive quantities, and lo and behold, the rats got cancer. No real big surprise mm -hmm. there. Um, oh, it was in 1986. Sorry, yeah, the Japanese study was in 1986. So anyway, um, you know, of course, the, the the you know people took this study and kind of ran with it um, instead of saying, hey, um, don't burn meat and then eat it, um, or eat just the burnt part in massive quantities. They said red meat causes cancer. 
Um, and since then, there's been, uh, you know, the, the, like I say, the media has kind of run with this, and, and every four to six months, you see another headline that says um, red meat causes cancer. Now, all these studies that come out afterwards are basically um, epidemiological studies, which means that they just look at large populations, um, give them food questionnaires, and ask them how much red meat they're eating, and then correlate that with um, cancer. Well, there's so much wrong with this methodology. Um, first of all, uh, a correlation between red meat consumption and cancer does not, um, you can't look at that and say that there is a cause. Um, but this doesn't stop the media from saying that there is a cause and that the that science has basically proved it. Um, so, uh, yeah, so every, every, every four to six months we see these, these headlines, and they're usually an epidemiological study um, implying causation where there is no causation. I mean, just to think about confounding factors, um, you know, people, because red meat is considered unhealthy, um, people who eat red meat are probably going to lead an unhealthy lifestyle. Um, they're probably not going to exercise. They're probably going to eat a lot of junk food, a lot of processed food, and all that sort of stuff. These things just kind of go hand in hand these days because um, anybody who cares about their health, um, with the constant programming we get from uh, the mass media, um, that's equated with eating less red meat. So th the idea that um, red meat eaters have more cancer, well, you know, what else are they eating? What else are they mm -hmm. doing in their lifestyle? Um, do they care about their health at all? Probably not. Um, so anyway, this, this study comes, uh, you know, in, in a long line of, of previous studies. But um, th the current study out of uh, San Diego, um, you know, it, it, uh, they, what they're trying to say is they found the mechanism you know, we found out why red meat causes cancer. Um, and they say that it's a, a type of sugar found in meat, um, a glycan, uh, called uh, Neo5GC. Um, and, yeah, there is actually a, a little bit of carbohydrate in meat. A lot of people don't know that, but it is pretty ne uh, negligible. Um, so, anyway, they, what, they, what they basically did is they took a bunch of mice genetically modified them to not produce this Neo5GC um, sugar, uh, which is normally a part of their, um, their normal physiology. Um, incidentally, it's not normally a part of human physiology. Um, so they decided that uh, to make these mice more like humans, they would make it so they don't produce this sugar. Uh, and then they force-fed them mass quantities of this sugar. So again, um, no big surprise, the mice developed cancer. Um, so anyway... Uh, I, I won't go into too many of the details of it, but basically, you know, there are issues with um, the authors of this study um, do have uh, conflicting um, interests. Uh, they are responsible for, there's a company that is uh, um, producing um, antibodies against this Neo uh, 5GC um, uh, sugar. So, you know, there, there's a lot of conflict of interest there. Um, and you really can't take an isolated part of the diet, um, isolate it out of what its normal environment and force-feed it in big quantities and then say that that somehow will indicate what um, is actually happening when you eat this as a normal part of the diet. Um, it just doesn't work that way. And also, I mean, genetically modified mice are in no way similar to humans. So there's just so much wrong with this study. Um, it's been, you know, criticized and debunked left, right, and center online. Um, and uh, but that that doesn't stop the damage because the media head like the headlines are what sell. So 
Um, you know, most people are not going to come across all this debunking or look into it any further. They just see the headline that says red meat causes cancer, and that is kind of more confirmed for them. So, yeah, the uh, the vegetarian myth continues. So, Doug, yeah. uh, in this study, if they isolated this glycan, and glycan is a sugar, didn't the researchers just prove that sugar causes cancer? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, well, it, it's a little bit different than that. Um, it's not quite the same thing as, as sugar. Um, it doesn't have the same effect. Yeah, no, I know. I know. But um, it, it, the interesting thing is, is that one, one author I read, um, one researcher, um, who had a whole lot of letters behind his name, so you know he knows what he's talking about, um, basically said that there are actually, they, they, there's a lot of studies out there that show a benefit of eating this type of, uh, of sugar. It helps with... Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I, I can't remember what it was. I think it it, it helps to prevent. Yeah, no, I can't. I can't remember specifically. Oh wait, I found it here. Um, it is interesting to note that Neo Five GC antibodies appear to be important for humans to combat a variety of viral infections. There's also evidence that without this unique sugar, there is an increase in GI infections among humans. Mm. So right there, um, you know, it calls into question a lot of of what this study is is uh, purporting to have found. I think it's really important to point out, like you said, that, uh, you know, <clears throat> they said red meat eaters at, are at a higher risk of cancer, but we need to look at what else they're eating. I mean, oftentimes, especially, I mean, I did in the past, and I know the majority of, of people that I know that would consider themselves red meat eaters are having burgers. And so you've got your buns, which have all of the, the wheat, um, not to mention the processed uh, bread product, which is not actually even bread. Um, you're looking at putting slathering barbecue sauce onto a steak, which is caramelized sugar. Um, yeah. You know, or you're looking at all of the condiments that go into it and everything else. And then you finish it off with a piece of pie or a bowl of ice cream or something. You know, so people's <laughs> diets are just just shot. Um, and so that I mean, I would love to see a comprehensive study that actually looked at all of these things. Um, I know that there are, there are some out there, but we we, we can say that. You know, it's a logical fallacy to say that red meat causes cancer because if you prepare it this one way and then eat, you know, 1,000% of of the amount of this one compound that they isolated, you're going to get cancer. It's just like you said, it's fallacious. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's like a bias. That's a good point, Jonathan. (laughs) Uh, People um, who do eat meat, but they also eat loads of carbs and wheat and all that stuff, they say that, oh, I have trouble digesting meat. I can't eat meat. I should become a vegetarian. But the question is always, what are you eating alongside that meat, and how much damage have you done to your intestines with all of this other yeah. stuff that it does make it difficult for you to digest anything, not just meat? Yeah. Yeah, Absolutely. exactly. Well, that leads us into uh, uh, <clears throat> another point that we were going to talk about today, <clears throat> which is anti-nutrients in vegetables and uh, so we want to be careful and make the distinction that we're talking specifically about a vegetarian diet we're not talking about a balanced kind of adding a little bit of celery to your chicken soup you know or having you know some ginger or having some turmeric or these kind of things what we're specifically talking about is the vegetarian diet where you cut out the benefits that you're receiving from meat and fat and you're only eating vegetables Um, that is actually quite dangerous to the human body and uh, so, uh, get, oh, sorry, go ahead. 
Oh, and the amount of soy that vegetarians yes. eat. Yeah. Okay. Massive. Massive amounts comes, of soy. comes from Oriental, uh, from Japan, China, Korea, and, you know, Oriental people never ate as much as they eat in the U.S. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we, uh, I know, yeah, Gabby, true. you had... Uh, you you had a bunch of uh, data um, that you wanted to go yeah. over regarding uh, anti-nutrients. Do you want to go into about, that? About anti-nutrients, I wanted to clarify that living organisms have their defense system, and animals and human beings, well, they run away, they fight. And the plant kingdom, plants usually, they also, like, have their defense system, but it is through anti-nutrients, basically natural pesticides. And this is what most people don't understand when they say, oh, we eat healthy vegetables. And, you know, uh, on the contrary, we could argue that, you know, the vegetable in the plant kingdom is um, very, you know, very evil. <laughs> evil, for example, um, that anti-nutrients um, that act against the thyroid can uh, suppress thyroid function and lower your metabolism. For example, if you eat three, four tablespoons of soy per day, that's enough to suppress your thyroid function. And to illustrate also the power of anti-nutrients, uh, there was a case study published in a mainstream medical journal. It was an 80-year-old, 88-year-old Chinese woman that she ended in the emergency room with a myxedema coma. That's a thyroid problem in this condition. And what she did, she was basically eating like two to three pounds of raw bak choy on a daily basis for several months. And she did it because it, uh, she thought it was going to cure or treat her diabetes. And she had no previous history of thyroid problems. And it was concluded that basically the induced coma, um, the thyroid problem, was um, a consequence of eating so much bak choy. Basically, the antinutrients mm. killed her thyroid glands, you know. The worst part was that even when she was at the hospital in intensive care unit, you know, in recovering, the family insisted, you know, to feed her back choy, you know. Huh. Huh. Well, so we can we can say it can could to put it in like kind of a conceptual context to get a more general understanding of it, that a vegetable a vegetable, um, let's say for instance, uh, wheat, uh, you know, it the the seeds that it puts off, it's is its own natural defense system that it creates so that it can be processed uh, through um, whatever's eating it and that the seeds will come out and the plant will then survive and continue to grow. So it's actually the plant's own system of continuing to live. Yes, and there are very natural things. You have the example of uh, wheat, anti-nutrients in wheat, and there's one specifically wheat germ agglutinin or WGA. It's a type of lectin, and lectin deserves like a special mention. It's a type of anti-nutrient then found among many plants and food, uh, food sources. But the one of wheat is particularly evil. You know, basically acts, uh, it is toxic for the nervous system, for the heart, for the joints, for the immune system. It's capable of triggering an autoimmune uh, reaction. Even, you know, even if you cook well, um, you know, even if it's digestive, even if the lectin goes through, through your digestive system, acid juices, even, even if it's cooked at high temperatures, it survives, you know, and, and then creates damage in the body. Even 
when a person is not uh, doesn't have a genetic susceptibility, i.e., celiac disease, it's mm-hmm. basically damaging for every single human being. You know that's why with the introduction of agriculture, you know, uh, human beings, you know, got not only shorter in stature but also got deteriorated joints and bones. You know. <clears throat> Would it be reasonable to say that uh, that a vegetarian diet actually demineralizes your bones? I think it's very reasonable. And also the vegetarian diet is the most ideal diet if you want to develop an autoimmune disease. This case is put forward and, and very well illustrated by Dr. Terry Wall, author of the Terry Wall Protocol. She has multiple sclerosis, and she reversed the neurological damage by, you know, getting off her vegetarian diet <laughs> and mm-hmm. adopting a more paleo lifestyle, you know, eating more meat and fat sources. And that's the the story that Lierre Keith shares in her book as well, her own battle with being vegan at, for 20 years and really starting to feel her health deteriorate rapidly. And it, she, she calls it agriculture is the disease of civilization. Mm. Yes. And it's not only like it mineralizes your bones, like Tiffany was mentioning, you know, like people eat a lot of vegetables for digestive issues. Vegetables and anti-nutrients in grains, in vegetables, are the ones that destroy the, the gut lining, the digestive system. For some, mm-hmm. it's more acute. For others, you can take oh, a while, a lifetime. But, you know, a person who has digestive issues will never recover their gut health just as long as they, you know, grains, and especially if it's GMO. And a person, you know, to recover good gut health, you have to increase fat and meat. It sounds counterintuitive, but it's, you know, it has a physiological explanation and, you know, it's a perfect explanation. Most people have, you find hard that, you know, find that hard to believe, but the right. the experience, the testimonials speaks otherwise. You know, most of us healed our own issues, gut issues, by you know, going keto or eating meat or fat. You know. Yeah, I mean, for me, it was a, a natural progression through the first. You know, I I came into it all of this completely ignorant. Um, like I said last week, you know, stacking tombstone pizzas on top of each other. And uh, my <laughs> first lesson was to was to cut out processed foods. So that was the first step, uh, and then I began to learn about, you know, the elimination diet so that you can find out what you're allergic to, and then I kind of learned about the paleo diet, and I was getting slowly better and better, but I used to have incredible pain in my joints, uh, in my neck, uh, in my fingers, in my knees, um, and as I learned more and more, and I began to eat more paleo, and now I'm uh, on the ketogenic diet, it's, it's pretty much gone, um, <clears throat> you know, unless I sleep wrong. Uh, I, I don't have any lingering joint pain like I used to have at all. Um, so, I mean, I think a lot of us have that same kind of anecdotal evidence where we've done this and we're just like, look, stuff gets better, you know. I don't need a medical yeah. study to tell me how I feel. No, it's true. And and, and a lot of times I find that, uh, like for, for my own personal journey, um, I didn't realize how bad I was until I started removing this kind of stuff. You know, from doing all this research and, and realizing um, how bad um, all this kind of stuff can be, 
you know, particularly the stuff that, that vegetarians uh, tend to emphasize in their diet, like grains, like legumes, uh, that sort of thing. Getting rid of that stuff, um, there, I, I kind of was suddenly like had this clarity um, that I had never previously had, and I never knew I was missing it. Um, until, uh, you know, and even other things like energy levels and um, weight and that sort of thing. Like, a, you know, just, just as far as like losing weight, um, you know, I used to weigh uh, 220 pounds when I was at my peak. Um, and uh, now I'm down to about 175. So, yeah, I mean, and, and you know, it wasn't even necessarily a, a, a goal, but it was just kind of like, well, let's see what happens when uh, when I kind of take out this stuff that uh, that I'm reading is is uh, is so terrible. That was the same thing for me in 2001. I think I peaked out at 295 pounds. Wow. Yeah, and it's just gone. Well, I, I got you beat on that one, Jonathan. I used to weigh close to like 340. Whoa! Wow! Wow! <laughs> yeah, it was monstrous. I myself put eight kilograms. I have to confess, I was a vegetarian as well, like for three years, and I put on like uh, eight kilograms, and my health mm. just went, you know, down the tubes. You know, I went to Italy at that time. I was eating pizza, pasta. Well, can you imagine pastries in Italy? <laughs> and uh, yeah. I had severe yeah. mood problems, and that's the other point I wanted to bring up. You know, tryptophan yeah. is an amino acid. It's, it's the main source for serotonin, which is a happy mood, a neurotransmitter. It makes us happy and, being, you know, um, well with ourselves, basically. And there are no plant sources for tryptophan. And you can realize that lots of vegetarians, they are very rigid. They have very rigid thinking and have mood problems. Uh, people with eating disorders like bulimia and anorexia, they're most likely to be vegetarian as well. And it all comes from a brain chemistry imbalance because they're not having enough tryptophan from animal sources. Yeah, well, I, that that brings to mind a, a common perception that uh, being lean is being healthy. And, you know, so that if you're skinny and you have this kind of gaunt look to you, then you're, you're supposed to be somehow healthy. And, uh, mm -hmm. I, you know, personally... I, I think that's completely wrong, and I think nutritionally that can be proven to be wrong, um, that an ideal weight, uh, if you're at your ideal weight, you don't look like a runway model, you know. Mm -hmm. um, and so we need to alter our perception about these things, too. I, I wanted to bring up another point as well that uh, people might be saying, well, okay, so if you're arguing against a vegetarian diet and you're arguing that you should be eating meat, um, <clears throat> what about factory farms? Like we say that agriculture is bad, so are you arguing that factory farms are okay? And I think we would all agree that no, uh, they're not okay, um, because that results in just as much damage uh, to the nutrients that you're trying to get into your body as eating a vegetarian diet. I mean, <clears throat> going to the store and getting your average, um, you know, pork or beef that comes from a giant factory farm, a lot of it is really tainted. And a, uh, <clears throat> a quote-unquote nice marbled steak is actually the size of a sign of a diseased animal. You know, if that animal yeah. has fat all throughout its muscle tissue, it's not going to live much more than a year anyway. Uh, yeah. So there's a lot of really false perceptions around these things. Yeah, the movie uh, Food, Inc. does a really good job of showing how cows are force-fed corn at the end of their lives, and I think they can maybe live 90 days on a corn mm -hmm. diet, you know, because wow. basically cows aren't meant to eat corn. 
they're meant to eat grass. And so basically at the last part of their lives, they fatten them up on corn to, to make more meat, to sell more meat. You know, I, I really recommend Food, Inc. as a kind of disturbing documentary on not only the agriculture system and genetically modified crops, but also the um, the, the CAFOs, they call them, Central Agriculture Farming Operations, that, that you know, yeah. the, the animal cruelty and the antibiotics and, yes, check it out. Well, that, that, that brings up the, uh, the idea of this, uh, this moral argument between, you know, uh, eating vegetarian or eating meat. Um, and, again, we have to be very careful to make our distinctions that we're not painting everything with a broad brush. Um, we're looking at specifically what is the optimal nutrition for a human body scientifically, objectively. And I think, um, you know, uh, uh, we just saw a comment here in our, in our chat. There is a way to raise animals for food and treat them with respect and give them all the optimal conditions that they need. And so somebody might say, well, you're still going to kill that animal, you know, so you're still being immoral. But, uh, and I say, but on purpose, and I've had this discussion with a few people, um, I think the moral argument is, is kind of fallacious because life requires suffering. It requires pain. Um, you know, it, there, there isn't a way in the world that we live in right now to, to live without suffering. I mean, when you're born, you cause your own mother incredible pain and suffering when you come into this world. So the idea that you could abolish suffering, I mean, the best that we can do is minimize it. And I think vegetarians like to think that they don't cause any suffering at all, which is completely wrong. Um, and I know as a, uh, this may rub people the wrong way, but I, I'm a hunter and during hunting season, I go out and hunt for deer. Um, but when I take a deer, I'm very, very careful and very conscious to, you know, uh, hit the correct spot and to kill that animal as quickly as possible with no suffering, no pain whatsoever. And to me, that's kind mm -hmm. of meeting the universe halfway. Um, the same way that you might run a farm, like locally, we have a lot of farms here where I live. Um, and you know, small local farms, not giant farms, because we live in a smaller area. Um, <clears throat> and their cows and their pigs are totally happy. They're living the life, you know. And when they're when they've lived their life, they're killed quickly and humanely. And nobody delights in their suffering, you know. Nobody laughs at it. It's all a part of this process that we're involved in. Um, so I really think that the argument between um, these two types of main diets. Uh, should not necessarily be a moral one. It should be a scientific one. It should be about what is the objective nutrition that's needed for a human body. Yeah, I think that's very true. Um, and I think that, you know, the moral argument really kind of um, uh, misses kind of the big picture in a lot of ways, like, you know, where we actually fit within this kind of organic life on Earth. It's like you say, I mean, um, you know, it, it, our subsistence does require the death of something else. Um, there's kind of no way around that, whether it's a plant or um, an animal. And um, you know, looking at where we kind of fit on this on this grant in this grand scheme of things, you know, um, you look at kind of the, the densest form of matter, where it's kind of like minerals and rocks and that sort of thing. Well, that kind of gets broken down by microbes and things like that, and made into a more complex form of uh, of of life, if if you can say that, or matter anyway. Um, and then that kind of gets taken up by the plants um, into an increasingly more complex um, form of life. 
so it, it's kind of like moving up the scale. And then the uh, the animal, say like a cow, eats the grass. So then suddenly it's taking in that um, matter again and turning it into a more complex form. Um, and then we uh, eat the animals, and again we can uh, convert that into a more complex form. So like we have all these sort of like higher reasoning, higher emotional capabilities um, that are kind of fed. You know, we can't go and eat rocks. Um, it doesn't work that way. Um, so we, uh, it, it's kind of required that all this matter kind of move itself up the chain um, and become more and more complex and allow for um, more complex forms of life. Um, and the vegetarians want to kind of see, like, you know, circumvent that. Um, and not kind of, uh, you know, eat these, these animals, these more complex life forms and kind of, um, you know, skirt, skirt the issue by going down a level to uh, a plant-based one. Um, the problem is that the, the substances that we require um, aren't found at that level. We need mm -hmm. to eat the things that are, are, are more complex and have, um, you know, uh, you know there's, there's the example of kind of the fatty acids um, that we require uh, for for our brain and for um, our blood vessels and um, many other parts of our uh, our anatomy as well, uh, these fats just simply aren't found in plant foods. Um, you know, the, but it requires an animal to eat these things and create these more complex fats. Uh, I'm talking specifically about things like uh, arachidonic acid, which is an omega six, um, uh, DTA, uh, DHA, which is an omega three. Um, although you can find DHA in, in, in some plant sources, it's not nearly in the quantities required um, by us. So by eating things like grass-fed beef and fish and things like that, we can get these fats, these more complex, longer-chain fatty acids that kind of allow us to serve our purpose on this planet, to actually you know, um, use our intellectual function, use our higher emotional function um, that we wouldn't be able to do um, were we to, to, to try and rely on um, lower, um, less information-dense uh, food sources. So in a way, it would be as if the, the vegetarians or the vegans are kind of removing themselves from the circle of life and from the reality of life on Earth where there are predators and there are preys, but they don't really want to accept that, so they want to step outside of that and think that they can still have a healthy, abundant life without being a part of that natural cycle that is life on Earth. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. I think but the so, thing yeah. is, they don't realize that they can't. They can't actually do that. That's not possible. Yeah. You can't yeah. remove yourself from from this cycle. It, it, it's it's how we live. It's it's the way um, reality functions. What I think related to that. Oh, go ahead, Gary. Related to that, I was going to say like Western Price when he made his tour around the world, around the world, studying food traditions and healthy cultures, he failed to find indigenous fruits that achieved perfect health and good physical bodies on only plant foods. There were basically zero vegetarian healthy populations. Yeah. yeah. I, I think it really depends on, too, what your, what your attitude is. I mean, you know, if I'm... If I'm at a farm, and let's say that it's time to butcher the cow, and so, you know, you have to kill the cow, you know, and you have to do it quickly and humanely. Um, I, I, I've not yet met a farmer, and I hope that I don't, who stands over the animal and laughs, you know, and takes mm -hmm. delight that he's killing this animal or loves the process, you know, or gets really into it. It's like, yeah, I'm going to kill a cow. You know, they, they, it's not about that. It's about how can you minimize 
the suffering, make it happen as quickly as possible. And, um, you know, it, I think it really depends on, on intent. And if somebody were to do that, I'd be like, well, you're, you're pretty nuts, you know? <laughs> <laughs> um, but, uh, Doug, you were talking about, um, <clears throat> the, the effects on these different types of, uh, of life. Um, and I have here, uh, looking at the Wikipedia page for Cleve Baxter, uh, who did some mm-hmm. experiments in the 1960s on what he called primary perception in plant life. And I'll just read this paragraph here. It says, Baxter's study of plants began in the 1960s. He reported observing that a polygraph instrument attached to a plant leaf registered a change in electrical resistance when the plant was harmed or even threatened with harm. His work was inspired by the research of physicist Yagadish Chandra Bose, who claimed to have discovered that playing certain kinds of music in the area where plants grew caused them to grow faster. Bose used a crescograph to measure plant response to various stimuli and demonstrated feeling in plants. From the analysis of the variation of the cell membrane potential of plants under different circumstances, he hypothesized that the plants can feel pain, understand affection, etc., and wrote two books about it in 1902 and 1926. In, uh, in February 1966, Baxter attached polygraph electrodes to a cane plant to measure at the first time taken for water to reach the leaves. The electrodes are used to measure galvanic skin response, and the plant showed readings which resembled that of a human. This made Baxter try different scenarios, and the readings went off the chart when he burnt the leaf because, according to him, the plant registered a stress response to his thoughts of harming it. He conducted another similar experiment where he observed a plant's response to the death of a brine shrimp in another room. His results convinced him that the plants demonstrated some sort of telepathic awareness. Now, that, I mean, I guess you could go back and forth and say that there might have been static electricity involved or variations in the frequency in the room. But Baxter's experiments on a very basic level showed that there is some sort of a, a chemical response within the plant that resembles the human response of pain. And mm-hmm. I think anybody who has common sense and looks around nature, looks at the trees and at the plants and at the environment that surrounds us can understand that there is some form of consciousness there. Um, mm-hmm. Certainly not uh, cognitive, but some form of consciousness. So this idea that, that by eating plants, you're not causing anything pain, I think in itself is, is kind of wrong. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's the yeah. circle of life. I don't know. You know and it, plants talk to each other through telepathy or through uh, chemical messengers or anything, but they do communicate with each other. And I think I was reading this, uh, might have been a Lierre Keith interview, or it could have even been in her book, The Vegetarian Myth, but uh, plants can warn each other. Like if a bear walks through the forest and he uh, brushes past some plants, that plant will warn the other plants that there is a predator amongst them. And mm-hmm. I think the, um, she mentioned something about the redwood forest where they have actually these albino uh, trees, and they can't photosynthesize, but they're fed by the other trees that are surrounding them. So plants do have a form of consciousness, and to say that, oh, nothing gets hurt just because I'm a vegetarian is really not true. <laughs> it's just something that we can't perceive because we're not plants. Yeah, exactly. So we have these. We have the, the moral argument. We have the nutritional argument, and uh, you know, you can go kind of back and forth all day long on some of these things. But I think what's like, if you really want to talk to some, like somebody comes up to you and says, "Hey, you know, I'm I'm a vegetarian, and I really I do it for this reason," and you want to have, sit down and have a conversation with them, 
we really encourage you. Um, I mean, don't be a bully, obviously, you know, you don't be like, stop eating that right now. Um, <clears throat> but everybody should do their own research and she, you should have the data at hand and you should understand what you're talking about. You know, why are, why is phytic acid bad? You know, why don't you want to eat raw kale, raw spinach, things like that? Why is that going to damage your cell membranes? Why do you want to eat high amounts of, of good fat, good saturated fat, um, that's, you know, grass from grass fed animals. Um, that kind of leads us into this, the area of, of, uh, like Doug, you mentioned the Western A. Price Foundation and Sally Fallon's research. Um, mm -hmm. do you mind talking for a few minutes just about what, what she's written about, uh, saturated fat and specifically grass fed animals? Uh, yeah. Well, first of all, I'll maybe just mention who Western A. Price was. So he, around, uh, turn of the century, uh, well, it was a bit later than that, I guess, the 1920s or so. Weston A. Price was a uh, dentist, and uh, he noticed that a lot of his um, patients were uh, suffering from uh, all kinds of dental problems that uh, weren't really common prior to kind of the, the um, uh, more recent changes in, like, the processing of food. Um, so he kind of set out on a, a, a bit of a, a journey um, to all these uh, traditional cultures around the world to kind of see what they were eating, look at their health, that sort of thing. And he was, it was very unique because he was doing this at a time when these traditional cultures still existed. Like today, pretty much everything has been modernized. It's very difficult to find an actual traditional culture that's still eating its traditional diet. Um, so he visited, he went all over the world, studied all these, uh, these uh, you know, primitive cultures, not to put uh, too much, um, you know, value um, on that uh, that word primitive, but uh, um, these these cultures that were still eating their uh, their their traditional diet, and he even was able to uh, study people within the same family. In some cases, even twins, where one uh, twin had kind of gone into the city and adopted a more um, uh, you know modern diet with all the processed food, and then studied the twin that had stayed behind and continued to eat the traditional diet. And the stuff he found was actually. Um, quite shocking. Um, he found all kinds of degenerative, degenerative diseases um, in the people eating the modern foods that just simply did not exist in the traditional cultures. Um, and as Gabby mentioned before, you know, he didn't really find a traditional culture that was eating a vegetarian diet. And when he did, it was by necessity. It wasn't because they had chosen to be um, vegetarian. It's because they just didn't have access to meat. And a lot of times they would do a lot of trade with neighboring tribes where they could get meat um, because they realized the value of it. Um, so, yeah, he, you know, he, he'd find these, uh, these traditional cultures. Um, you know, they weren't necessarily eating what we would consider uh, an ideal diet. Um, you know, some of them, you know, he, he found uh, cultures in islands um, off of Ireland that were eating... Um, oats, and uh, there was a few other ones that were eating some other um, kind of uh, vegetable products that we know today are probably not the best. But um, one thing he did find is they always emphasized fat in their diets, um, animal fats at that. Uh, so they were always getting, you know, uh, like the, this culture that ate oats, they ate um, butter like there was no tomorrow. Um, and it was like, you know, un, unprocessed, unpasteurized butter. So uh, they're getting all the important fats um, necessary uh, for those sorts of things. Um, so, you know, come come up to uh, today, um, in the 80s, I believe, it might have been the 90s, um, uh, Sally Fallon uh, started looking into the research of Weston Price, and she started the uh, Weston A. Price Foundation, 
um, because uh, she she realized how important his research was. Uh, so she wrote a book uh, called Nourishing Traditions. Uh, I think the subtitle on that is the cookbook that challenges the political correct nutrition and the diet dictocrats or, or something along those lines. Um, and she okay. – uh, so that was it. Okay, great. Um, it's one of my favorite books. So, <laughs> uh, yeah, <laughs> that, that my, my, the page, the, my, my copy of that one is well-worn. Um, it's an excellent book. I mean, it, it, it is a cookbook. Um, essentially, but there is so much more information packed into it. Um, it goes so far beyond the recipes, um, bringing to light a lot of this research of Western A. Price as well as other researchers, um, and just about the importance of um, a traditional diet. And like I say, she gets into some stuff that, that you know we don't necessarily agree with. Um, she does talk about the proper preparation of things like grains and legumes and stuff like that. Uh, if you were going to pick up the, the book, I think uh, it, you know those those parts of the book are, are maybe best skipped. But um, this, the section on fats is one of the the best ever written. Um, she points out the importance of saturated fat, how protective they are. Um, you know all the the, the much uh, publicized omega threes and omega sixes. Um, they can't do their proper function in the body unless they are accompanied by saturated fat, uh, something that gets, you know, glossed over by um, by the mainstream when they talk about this kind of stuff that where they're always talking about limiting uh, saturated fat. Let's, uh, let's expand on that for a second. Like what, what is the, I mean, to my understanding, the difference between an, an unsaturated and a saturated fat is basically the gaps um, between the connections, the molecular bonds. And an unsaturated yeah. fat uh, it has more potential to be oxidized and damaged. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So basically, um, a fat is a long carbon chain um, with a, a group on the end of it. Um, so those carbon chains, when they're saturated with a saturated fat, it means it is all the bonds in those carbon chains are taken up by hydrogen. Um, an unsaturated fat means that some of those carbon atoms have a double bond, leaving some uh, space for more hydrogen. And what that does is basically uh, change the chain so that it is a little bit more curved. Um, so saturated fats and unsaturated fats have different functions in the body. The curvy ones um, often end up in mel uh, cell membranes to make them a little bit, uh, you know, the, the cell brain a little bit more permeable, a little bit more flexible. Um, whereas the uh, saturated fats are more rigid, um, and they uh, serve to protect, um, but they're also a lot more stable. Um, like you said, uh, by having those double bonds, that, uh, that uh, fatty acid is more vulnerable to oxidative damage. Um, so uh, you, you need to have those protective uh, properties uh, for your unsaturated fats. You can be downing fish oil as much as you want, uh, if you aren't getting saturated fat in your body, uh, a lot of those uh, um, unsaturated fats from the fish oil are getting damaged. So, um, yeah, very, very important to have saturated fat. Very important for your brain, speaking of which, vegetarians have smaller brains as well. Yeah. Sure. That, yeah, that's true. Yeah, yeah. The, sorry. I, I was just going to say, uh, Gabriella, as a as a heart surgeon yourself, um, you know, could you could you speak to the effect of uh, uh, saturated fats uh, on the heart? I think that's one of the common misconceptions is that if I eat a lot of fat, you know, I'm going to damage my heart. But you know, as we stated earlier, people who are eating a lot of fat oftentimes are eating first of all they're eating bad fats um, that contain a lot of toxins and are not not good from grass fed uh, animal sources. And they're also supplementing that with a lot of 
grains and a lot of sugar and stuff that's damaging that whole balance. But what what's your experience yeah. in in how a good a good the fat diet yeah, can, have a, can help the heart? Yeah, a couple of comments first, like from a vegetarian point of view, like uh, in heart surgery, you know, tissues of vegetarians will be you can tell from a surgical point of view, and also when you when you see it with your own eyes, they have a, a bad quality, like they're missing something, like they're more watery, like they don't hold on. Like That's one comment, you know, from, <laughs> from what I witnessed and experienced. And then, yes, it's true, like when you see an open-heart surgery, you'll see the heart, you know, it's typically surrounded by a thick uh, layer of fat, you know, all around the heart. And as closer to the heart, the thickest it is. And that's because fat, you know, it's the, the main energetic source for 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 heart metabolism. And uh, a healthy, you know, a healthy pumping heart is a heart that is surrounded by fat, basically. And uh, people have to keep in mind all the, all the explanations that you just need about, you know, omega three, saturated fat, and so forth. Is that the quality of your body fat will be. Uh, it will depend on what you eat. If you eat, you know, uh, fat that is based on um, animals that ate only corn, or you eat fats that are uh, vegetarian, you know, vegetable oils, hydrogenated toxic oils, that will be the composition of your fat, highly flammable oxidizing fat. And that's, you know, why people get hardened arteries or even Alzheimer's. You know, when you have, like, a fatty component in your body that gets oxidized, you get a disease. It depends. In the brain, it can be Alzheimer's. In the heart, it will be atherosclerosis. Um, in tissues in general, can be cancer and so forth. So that's the importance of having, you know, good animal saturated fat. Yes, and, and very important for people, you know, going into this type of, into the high-fat diet. <clears throat> the same with the vegetarian diet. Um I mean, what I mean by the same is that any kind of diet that you approach, you really need to have um, the data behind uh, what you're doing. You have to research it. You have to understand why you're doing it. And I've noticed that a lot of people that I talk to who are vegetarians or vegans, you ask them why they're doing it, and it's either a moral reason, which we kind of already talked about, or they just say, well, it's better. And you're like, okay, why? And, well, it's just better, you know. And um, so it's really important to get that good – you know, scientific basis for why you're doing what you're doing. And um, we have some discussion going on in our chat room right now about uh, uh, having a high-fat diet and still having some heart problems. And this person may still be eating a little too many carbohydrates. Um, and mm -hmm. I wonder if uh, you guys could talk a little bit about why it's extremely important to decrease the carbohydrates if you're eating a high-fat diet. Yeah, for one, you know, you will get, uh, when you eat high amounts of carbohydrates, you stimulate your hormone insulin. And insulin is basically what gets, you know, any energetic source back into the cells, but it also has um, aging properties. You know, it's like eternal summer reproduction stage of your life, and, you know, you continually age. So it is very important if you want to have, like, an anti-aging effect in your metabolism, in your body, is to decrease the amount of carbs, especially the ones coming from 
where we just talk about toxic sources, vegetarian sources, grains, seeds, you know, processed foods, GMOs especially, and so forth. Well, and sugar as well. Uh, Tiffany, would you mind addressing that issue briefly? We were talking before the show a little bit about uh, about sugar and their effects, and uh, I, I think a lot of people have questions about that because they hear, you know, well, okay, so processed sugar is bad, but glucose is good, and I don't really know the difference. You know, that might be somebody's approach to this. Um, so let's talk a little bit about, like, where – like, where are these sugars coming from in the vegetarian diet, and, and why is that damaging to the body? Well, if you think of sugar, uh, you have to know that sugar is just one of the carbohydrates. So when you eat carbohydrates, including sugar, um, all carbohydrates get broken down into glucose in the bloodstream, and that causes uh, your pancreas to secrete more insulin to deal with that uh, all the glucose that's in your bloodstream to get it to go into the cells. So if you um, if you have an overproduction of insulin coming from your pancreas, your pancreas is working overtime. Um, that can cause your pancreas to, uh, I guess you could call it swell, and that can lead to uh, pancreatic cancer down the line. So you do have to be um, cognizant of how much not just plain table sugar that you're drinking, but how much carbs, too. And I think I also read something about how um, sugar actually strips your body of minerals versus contributing to your mineral load. Um, That brings me to uh, diabetes. We have essentially people just think of uh, two different types of diabetes, where you have uh, type 1 diabetes where your, your pancreas does not produce any insulin at all. Usually uh, children end up with this. And then you have uh, diabetes type 2, where the cells in your body are resistant to insulin. Your pancreas is still producing it, but your your body just can't pick up the signal. And now um, I read that there was a study that came out, I think it was in 2009, that identified a third type of diabetes. Um, Actually, it's not just your pancreas that produces insulin, your brain also produces a small amount of insulin. And with diabetes type 3, your brain becomes resistant to insulin. And that can cause uh, memory problems, Alzheimer's, dementia, things like that. So that's another thing that we have to look out for when you're talking about carbohydrate production or ingestion, sorry. Yeah, another another um, um, aspect of why um, you know you might still see health problems even though somebody is eating a, a high fat diet but still um, continuing to cons- consume carbohydrates um, is the glycating effect that um, sugars can have in the body. Um, basically, this is what happens is the um, the, the sugars um, will actually attach to protein uh, molecules. Um, and what they do is they interfere with the function of the proper function of those um, those uh, uh, those proteins, um, and proteins are responsible for all you know kinds of biochemical reactions in your body. Um, they make up you know uh, different uh, tissue structures and all sorts of things. So to have kind of this layer of you know they refer to it as like a caramelizing of the cells, um, where mm-hmm. you have this kind of layer of sugar. Um, on, on top of these things, uh, on top of these cells, 
um, or uh, tissues or, you know, on other molecules that are supposed to be having these, uh, these important functions in the body. So having a constant high level of, of sugar in the bloodstream um, or in the body anywhere um, can, can lead to more and more of this kind of glycating effect. Um, and that can interfere with your health in a multitude of ways. Um, one being uh, like insulin resistance, like Tiffany was just mentioning. Um, and, you know, th this, this could very well be what you see behind um, things like heart disease or Alzheimer's or any other chronic condition um, that, uh, that we see so prevalent today. Yes, that is true. And um, there is actually a, a lab, a laboratory blood test marker when you can indirectly measure your caramelizing effect. Um, it's called glycated hemoglobin, and it tests for, you know, it's an indirect measure of the amount of sugar you ate in the last three months or so. And the interesting thing is that, you know, at primary care on, on the health system, it is impossible to see lower-ish levels. Um, people on the paleo and the, keto, and the keto diet are the pioneers of having, you know, relatively low levels of this caramelizing marker just because they don't eat, you know, so much sugar. Yeah. Is that the uh, HbA1c test, Gabby? Yes. Yes, okay. that's the one. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good one to add to the annual checkup if you guys are interested. <laughs> it's not like a, you know perfect me a measure, but it's uh, an indirect measure. It, it gives you a pretty good idea. I think sure. it, uh, it measures the amount of um, glycation or sugars that are surrounding your red blood cells, like for the past three months yeah. before you took the test. So it can give you a good marker of how you're, how you're doing blood sugar-wise, not just on that day, but at least three months back. I'm, I'm wondering, uh, uh, I, I bet some people are, would be listening to this and, and saying, well, okay, but there's all this data, there's all this science that I've heard, you know, there's the American Heart Association and they talk about, you know, I've heard the term the lipid hypothesis and they're saying fats are bad. And so we here have been discussing how fats are actually good. Good fats are good. Um, but I wanted to address briefly why you might be being lied to, you know, and, and why you might not. Uh, be getting the truth from these scientific studies. And I found a little bit here, speaking of Sally Fallon and the West Nay Price Foundation, um, where she speaks about in 1956, uh, the American Heart Association held a fundraiser that aired on all three of the major networks at the time. Um, the, uh, the interviewer uh, interviewed, among others, Irving Page and Jeremiah Stamler of the AHA and a researcher named Ansel Keys. Uh, panelists presented the lipid hypothesis as the cause of heart as the cause of the heart disease epidemic and launched what they called the prudent diet, one which includes corn oil, margarine, chicken, and cold cereal uh, to replace butter, lard, beef, and eggs. But the television mm. campaign was not, an, it was not an unqualified success because one of the panelists, Dr. Dudley White, disputed his colleagues at the AHA. Dr. White noted that the heart disease in the form of myocardial infarction was non-existent in 1900 when egg consumption was three times what it was in 1956, when corn oil was unavailable. And when pressed to support the prudent diet, Dr. White replied, see here, I began my practice as a cardiologist in 1921, and I never saw an infarction patient until 1928. So mm -hmm. I, I think it's, it's 
clear that uh, a lot of this uh, stuff that we've heard and what has been accepted as the norm throughout throughout our recent history has been pushed, um, you know, at the behest of, of industry, of political interests, of economic interests. And personally, I don't think it's that far of a reach to consider that these organizations don't actually have your best health in mind. Yeah, I think that's very true. And, and even one thing that's very telling is that uh, the dietary guidelines for Americans um, is, is put out by the USDA, um, United States Department <laughs> of Agriculture. So why is the United, United States Department of Agriculture, whose interest is in selling more agricultural products, telling Americans what they should be eating? Um, there's a huge right. conflict of interest there. Um, you know, they're, they're, the things that they're recommending are the products of agriculture, and of course they would be. Um, but these are taken as the, the um, you know, the gold standard for what a healthy diet should look like. Um, so really, their interest is, is, has nothing to do with health. It has to do with selling more agricultural products. And then the USDA, they came up with the food pyramid also. Exactly. Which for a, a paleo diet or a ketogenic diet, it should really be turned on its head. And yeah. grains should be at the top the things, well, you shouldn't eat those anyway, but um, those should be the things that you eat sparingly, if at all. You shouldn't eat them. Yeah. But fats should be the basis. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, and, and you mentioned Ansel Keys there, and he's kind of the uh, the, uh, the the modern villain of uh, kind of the, the, the paleo uh, and ketogenic yeah. world because uh, he, he, he uh, put out a study – um, in the 50s uh, called the Seven Countries Study, which is a notorious study and often used in classrooms to uh, demonstrate to students how not to do research. Um, it's a classic example of, showing, of, of using correlation to uh, try and, uh, um, you know, uh, imply causation. Um, so what he did, I'll, I'll just give a really quick rundown. He basically um, correlated heart disease with how much saturated fat um, different cultures were eating, and he looked at seven different cultures and said, see, look, there's a very clear correlation here. This culture eats a lot of saturated fat, and they have a lot of heart disease. This culture eats no sat or little saturated fat and has uh, little to no heart disease. But, of course, what he didn't do is include the data for 16 other uh, countries uh, that mm -hmm. existed at the time, which so showed no such correlation whatsoever. In fact, in a lot of cases, they showed the exact opposite. Um, but nonetheless, his study was kind of taken and uh, promoted. And I mean, I think there was a lot of um, uh, commercial interest behind it, like the edible oil industry, which was kind of up and coming at the time, um, that you know saw this as a way of promoting their product um, over uh, the, the traditional diet. So since then, we've seen these dietary recommendations that recommend vegetable oils instead of animal fats, reducing animal products as much as you possibly can, um, eating grains, uh, legumes, that sort of thing. Um, and, of course, you've seen nothing but a decline in uh, the health of the population since then. That's yeah. interesting that you bring that up. Do you know when that study came out? Because uh, from what I've been researching, um, in 1910, the the rates of myocardial infarctions or heart attacks, uh, they were virtually non-existent. And then by 1930, there were about 3,000 deaths a year in the United States. And then by 1960, there are about 500,000 deaths a year from myocardial wow. infarctions. So wow. it seems to correlate with the introduction of these margarines and 
hydrogenated yeah. vegetable oils. Yeah. Yeah, that, that study didn't come out until I think the 1950s, but you have to remember that, that, that at the yeah. turn of the century is when all these processed foods started coming out. You had two mm-hmm, world mm-hmm. wars where people were subsisting on, you know, their, their food rationing was happening, so people were assisting more and more on, you know, canned uh, products that couldn't necessarily get access to things like fresh eggs and fresh meats and things mm-hmm. like that. So, yeah, I think I think that's why... You see that kind of stuff. That that is, you know, it does mirror the rise of um, the processed oil industry. Mm-hmm. Hmm. We have a, a, an appropriate question here in our chat room that says, uh, "What does everyone think of non-grass-fed butter?" Apparently, in Canada, grass-fed is a little bit hard to get. Where where our listener is from? Um, yeah. So, I mean, it, what do you guys think about that? Um, I think that. Go ahead. If you can get grass-fed butter, I think that that's actually ideal. But if you have no other choice, I would go with the regular butter. Or organic, at least. Yeah, you want you want to at least do organic. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And the the listener in Canada, uh, you know, things things are getting better in Canada. Um, I'm in Canada myself, and. Um, over the summer, um, there's a brand called Organic Meadow that actually um, does kind of a limited, uh, limited release uh, uh, grass-fed butter. Um, you know, in the winter time, it's harder to do because there is no grass; it's all covered in snow. Um, and there is um, a brand now that actually just came out of grass-fed butter in in Canada. Um, I don't know where this listener is, but um, in Toronto, there's a store called the Big Carrot, and I've seen it at Whole Foods as well. It's like a Mennonite farm. That does uh, mm-hmm. pure grass-fed butter, so so things are getting better. Yeah, cool. and if you can't find good stuff in your grocery store, try to get to know uh, the farmers in your area if they're close by. I'm sure that what you can get from a small farm will be better than big chain grocery stores. Absolutely, I've had I've I've definitely had that experience in in my own life um, and just uh, where I live. Um, going up to farmers, a lot of farmers, I mean, of course, you know, given day-to-day dynamics, you catch somebody on a bad day, but a lot of farmers, you can, you can drive right up. And if you see them outside, mm-hmm. just be friendly, just wave and be like, Hey dude, you know, I got some questions. Like, can I get beef from you? Can I get butter from you? How do we make this work? And they'll talk to you and they'll be really open with you about it. Um, and sometimes they'll give you free stuff. Yeah. <laughs> And that's that's right. where the so, the West the Western Price Foundation has an excellent website that um for people in the US. Uh they also produce a little pamphlet called Wise Traditions in Food, Farming and the Healing Arts and kind of their motto is education, research and activism. And so it's like a little 25-page pamphlet where you can contact farmers in your area, you can become a member of the the Weston Price Foundation and they're you know they have kind of this these topics that they address like nutrient dense foods, traditional fats, broth is beautiful, truth in labeling, soy alert, uh non toxic farming, pasture fed livestock, uh community supported agriculture. So it's a really good reference as uh Doug shared earlier in that nourishing tradition. Kind of like a textbook the book to have to have these um, sources of information where you can contact a farmer and ask questions and and they're always really happy to share you know what yeah. they're doing yeah. it's a it's a labor yeah. of love in addition to 
you know, providing healthy food sources. Yeah, get, getting in touch yep. with your local chapter of the Weston A. Price Foundation is a very good move. If you're trying to move to um, to a diet like this and trying to get uh, pasture-fed meats and, and butter and that sort of thing. Yeah, and what's great so that, if you read about them on Wikipedia is that, uh, you know, they're a nonprofit. Uh, most of their revenue is generated by their members. And according to the Washington Post, um, the foundation does not receive funding from the government or the food processing, processing or agribusiness industry. It does expect, right. accept sponsorships, but um, so you know they're not they're not part of that diet dictocrat business. You know they try yeah, and exactly. offer alternatives. I saw Sally Fallon address that on a on a Q and A too, as well on YouTube, looking up the oiling of America. And the lecture that she gave, and somebody asked that question, and she said, no, you know, we're definitely not sponsored by any governmental organization because that would just kill the credibility. I mean, they're, they're really credible, scientific, objective research that they have going on, and it's a grassroots thing. Um, so that's for anybody who's curious, that's WestonAPrice.org, so W-E-S-T-O-N-A-P-R-I-C-E.org. Um, and there's a lot of information on that site. Um, speaking of that, we're we're getting close to our end here. But do you guys want to cite any more uh, resources that people could uh, could look up either on Google or YouTube? And like, where should they go to find out some more about this stuff? I think Lear Keith has her own website. I believe it's learkeith.com. And that's K or even just uh, E I T H. Oh, I just wanted to make sure that we had it spelled. R R E L I E R R E K E I T H dot com. Cool. Even just perusing the uh, health and wellness section on SOT, um, yeah. there's a lot of good uh, good information there. Um, looking through the archives, you know, doing some searches, you can find uh, some some really good. Uh, Good resources there. Yeah. And don't forget our uh our diet and health section on the forum. Oh yeah. Oh for yeah. sure. And definitely Mine's read me. Doug's article Burying mm. the Vegetarian Hypothesis, which is a great mm. overview of nourishing traditions and addresses a lot of the topics that we talked about today in the show. Mm. Awesome. Well um I wanted to also uh, let's definitely not forget uh, our friend Zoya, uh, who has helped us out by creating a, a segment called the Pet Health Corner. And um, <clears throat> while you know somebody who's a vegetarian might be like, well, "You guys are talking about eating animals. So why do you, you know how could you care about animals?" Well, we do, <laughs> and you know we care about suffering, and so we care about the health of our animals that we have. And so uh, Zoya is a veterinary uh, student, student, and. Um, she made a little segment here for us as an overview of uh, pet health. So I'm just going to go ahead and play that. Hello, and welcome to the natural pet health segment of the Health and Wellness Show. My name is Zoya, and I'm a fourth-year veterinary student. During my studies, I had an opportunity to observe all kinds of things that, just like in human medicine, aren't particularly beneficial or right for our pet's well-being. Therefore, 
This time, we are going to talk about the main ten lies told to us by the mainstream veterinarian science, or in other words, ten main issues, misrepresented or presented to us incorrectly. These are lies that contribute to the development of various diseases and prevent your pets from having long, healthy and happy lives. Unsurprisingly, many of the issues are similar to the lies told by human doctors, and in many cases, if you educate yourself on better nutrition and way of life for yourself, it could be applied for your pet as well, of course, with some modifications. So we will uh, begin with the first slide. Kibble or dry food is good for your pet, particularly if it's a special diet, some sort of metabolic blend or dry food for cats with kidney disease, for example. Well, the reality is that it isn't true. My favorite counter-argument is, how would you feel after eating croutons all your life, no matter how tasty the croutons are? We are going to expand on each of the points in further shows, but for now let me just say that as it turns out, dry food is one of the main reasons for many metabolic and hormonal diseases, and in many cases it's also very expensive, so you end up paying twice, first time for a bad food, and then for a visit to a veterinarian. The solution? Feed your pets with natural species-appropriate diet. Next issue is vaccines and the need to vaccinate every year. Now, do you remember how I told you that we humans and animals have a very similar physiology, right? And thank God we don't have to vaccinate every year. In fact, there is enough evidence that we don't need to vaccinate at all. But since in most of the countries it's the law that you have to vaccinate our, your pet for rabies at least once, there is no way around it. But there is a very big lie in the veterinarian community that one has to do annual revaccinations for several main viruses or bacteria in order to maintain the same level of immunity. In the dedicated show, we are going to expand on this topic uh, in order to help you understand how immunity works and how to ask your local veterinarian to test your pet's immunity next time he or she will remind you about revaccination. Next topic is steroids or extensive use of steroids. For example, in cases of acute inflammation, skin diseases, and other. And while steroids considered to be miracle makers, they, they can heal pretty fast, uh, they also have an insidious side that we all should be aware of. For example, owners of specific dog breeds like poodles should be aware that it, in some cases it may be enough for their dog to have even one shot of cortisone to acquire Cushing disease. We will talk about possible alternative solutions or if it's unavoidable, how to minimize the damage. Next topic is various chronic diseases and it will be combined with cancer. Uh, those are very broad topics with many possible causes like breed, predisposition, bad nutrition, bad environment, and yes, even Wi-Fi can trigger development of cancer or contribute to various chronic diseases. So we are going to talk about that too. Next topic or next slide is herbal medicine is useless and nothing more than pseudoscience. And it's true that there are many veterinarians that consider homeopathy, for example, as a witchcraft and those who practice it as charlatans. Now, I study in the East European University. And one of the things that are surprisingly good here is because the university doesn't have a big budget for fancy equipment or drugs, they teach us how to treat animals using natural or herbal solutions, something we can find in a forest or in a field nearby. And I can tell you from a personal experience that it does work. So we will talk about that too. 
A separate show will be dedicated to homeopathy. I myself have no experience with it, but will do my research and share the results with you. Now, next topic will be nurturing, sterilization, orchestration. Um, the thing is that for a very long time, nurturing was considered to be the most responsible thing a pet owner uh, had to do in order to prevent overpopulation of stray dogs and cats. But now, more and more, we hear how early nurturing, early is when a pet is less than one year old, leads to various hormonal and metabolic disorders and, diseases and problems with the immune system in general. So now, being a responsible owner takes entirely new form. So we will talk about that. Next topic will be necessity of doing various surgeries, cosmetic or other. Now, sometimes surgery is unavoidable. Uh, for example, in cases of accidents, various fractures, inbred uh, disabilities or disorders. But that's what surgery should be, a last resort, a last solution, uh, emergency case. But there are still many veterinarians that do cosmetic surgeries, even if they were outlawed in many countries. Surgeries like deep-lowing, ear-cropping, debarking, or cutting of vocal cords. It's possible that many owners don't know how painful or uncomfortable such surgeries for pets, so we are going to talk about that. And the last topic is going to be flea, tick protection, deworming, and poisoning in pets in general. Because there are many solutions that are very effective, but also very damaging for pets. If you put even one tiny extra drop, or want to apply the solution correctly, it can lead to poisoning. Not to mention extreme sensitivity of some dog breeds, like Collie and Sheltie, to the main active ingredient in the warming products. So we are going to talk about possible alternative and natural solutions. So this is it for today's show. And next time we are going to talk about nutrition, about species-appropriate diet. And for now, thank you for listening, and good day. All right. Thanks a lot, Zoya. That was awesome. We're really looking forward to having Zoya on the show and uh, getting much more insight from a uh, from a trained professional into pet health. It's going to be great. So I think we want to uh, we want to wrap up today's show with a recipe, kind of like we did the, last week. Uh, but since we were talking about Sally Fallon and the West N.A. Price Foundation, we're going to pull from the book Nourishing Traditions and. Uh, just going to do a basic one here, uh, Sally Fallon's recipe for chicken stock. Um, and I just want to read a little bit here. Uh, you know, she's got some extra kind of descriptions on this page, so I'd like to go through that for a quick second. She says, why is chicken soup superior to all the things we have, even more relaxing than Tylenol? It's because chicken soup has a natural ingredient which feeds, repairs, and calms the mucus lining in the small intestine. This inner lining is the beginning or ending of the nervous system. Uh, it is easily pulled away from the intestine through too many laxatives, too many food additives, etc., and parasites. Chicken soup heals the nerves, improves digestion, reduces allergies, relaxes, and gives strength. Um, and so let's go through the recipe here real quick. Well, we have one whole free-range chicken uh, two or two to three pounds of bony chicken parts, such as necks, backs, breastbones, and wings. Uh, gizzards from one chicken, optional. Um, feet from the chicken, also optional. You may not be able to get those, but if you can, throw the feet in there. Four quarts of cold filtered water, two tablespoons of vinegar, one large onion, coarsely chopped, 
two carrots, peeled and coarsely chopped, three sticks of celery, coarsely chopped, and one bunch of parsley. Uh, the directions now are if you're using a whole chicken, cut off the wings and remove the neck, fat glands, and the gizzards from the cavity. By all means, use chicken feet if you can find them. They are full of gelatin. Even butter, use a whole chicken with, uh, with the head on. These may be found in oriental markets. Farm-raised, free-range chickens give the best results. Many battery-raised chickens will not produce to stock the gels. Cut chicken parts into several pieces. Uh, if you're using a whole chicken, remove the neck and wings and cut them into several pieces. Place the chicken or chicken pieces in a large stainless steel pot with the water, vinegar, and all vegetables except parsley. Let stand 30 minutes to one hour. Then bring to a boil and remove the scum that rises to the top. Reduce heat, cover, and simmer for 6 to 24 hours. The longer you cook the stock, the richer and more flavorful it will be. About 10 minutes before finishing the stock, add the parsley. This will impart additional mineral ions to the broth. Remove the whole chicken or pieces with a slotted spoon. Uh, if you're using a whole chicken, let it cool and remove the chicken meat from the carcass. Reserve it for other uses such as salads. Uh, she says enchilada sandwiches or curries. We would prefer that you not have enchiladas or sandwiches for sure. <laughs> Stay away from the grains. <laughs> uh, the skin and smaller bones, which will be very soft, may be given to your dog or cat. Strain the stock into a large bowl and reserve it in your refrigerator until the fat rises to the top and congeals. Skim off this fat and reserve the stock in covered containers in your refrigerator or freezer. Um, <clears throat> I, could, I just wanted to give a little note on here, too. I can attest to the gelling aspect of chicken stock. Um, for me, I found that if I, if, when you bring it to a boil, watch it very carefully. And as soon as it starts to boil, turn it back down. You don't want to boil that for very long or it's going to damage the fats and it won't gel properly. So you want to make sure that for the length that you're you don't let it boil for like an hour. You want to turn it back down, let it simmer for that amount of time. Uh, she said six to 24 hours. Now I did, um, I think, three hours on my last stock, and it came out great. After I put the stock into the fridge, it was super jelly, really thick. <clears throat> so I guess uh, if anybody's looking for something to make this week, um, make yourself some chicken broth. Yeah, one, one thing so I wanted to mention about that. Sorry. Um, I just uh, I found that uh, there's there's a lot of um, uh, well I shouldn't say that a lot but but some people actually encourage you to do like you know 48 hours um, for a, a stock or a, a broth I find that actually doing it that long um, makes it less likely to gel and I think the reason for that is that yeah. it just it cooks for so long that the uh, that some of the gelatin actually gets broken down um, so yeah, I, I prefer to do it for I prefer to do it for a little bit like for a shorter time I'd say like. You know, 12 to 24 hours, I think, is usually a, mm -hmm. a, a good a good. The gelatine uh, is a good measure that your that your broth is really well made, so you would want to use that as a guide. Yeah. 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 So, if people aren't familiar, when you to tell that it's gelled, you know, when you take it out of the fridge, it should essentially be like Jello. Like if you have it in a mason jar and you shake the jar, it shouldn't roll around like a liquid. It should just kind of wiggle back and forth like a big piece of Jello, and that's kind of how you can tell the consistency that you want to achieve. Um, so that's our, that's our show for today. Uh, thanks to everybody who's been listening and I uh, really appreciate uh, all the knowledge and the input from all our co-hosts. Thanks guys. So we'll look forward Thank to you. being back on SOT radio network uh, next Monday. Great. Great. Thank you. Thank you. Right. Thanks everybody. Thank you. You've been listening to the Health and Wellness Show on the SOT Radio Network. Thanks again, and be sure to tune in next week.